coming up on the Branding Deep Dive podcast. So if you want people to love your brand, it's not enough to make it good. Because if you make it good or you make it even excellent, what you're going to get is higher levels of instrumental value, which is good. That's a good thing. You want that. But it's not enough for love. For love, you have to have that plus. You have to get them to start thinking about your product or brand using the same thought processes that they use for people. So just like there's objectification where you look at a person, but you think about them as if they were an object, there is personification where you look at an object and you think about it as if it was a person. So that can happen and it does happen. And every time people really love a product or a brand, it's because they are at some unconscious level doing that personification. They're taking this thing and they're thinking about it as if it was a person. This is Ahmed Shima and welcome to the Branding Deep Dive podcast. If you're new here, this is a podcast where we have in-depth discussions with founders, marketers, and brand strategists on how to build a brand that people love. Today, we're talking to Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. Dr. Ahuvia is the brand love guy. He's a Sarnicki Endowed Professor of Marketing at the University of Michigan-Dearborn and a popular keynote speaker. He's the world's leading expert on brand love, a topic of rapidly growing interest among companies looking for long-term customer relationships. His book, The Things We Love, explains the psychology behind brand love, and it has been named by Amazon as one of the best 20 business books for 2022. Dr. Ahuvia conducted the first scientific studies of brand love some 30 years ago and continues to lead research on this topic. A Stanford University study ranked him in the top 2% of all scientists worldwide, and he has hundreds of press appearances, including being a guest on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Dr. Ahuvia works regularly with Google and has spoken on brand love at leading companies, including L'Oreal, Samsung, Maybelline, Procter & Gamble, Audi, General Motors, Microsoft, Ford, GFK Market Research, and many others. In this episode, we dive deep into why we love brands, techniques for actually making people fall in love with our brand, his perspective on how Apple develops brand love, and much, much more. If you want your customers to fall in love with your brand, this episode is a must listen. Now, here's Dr. Brand Love. I want to start with the Oprah Winfrey show. I did see the clip. Um, uh, can you share your experience on how you got on Oprah and what you actually talked about? Sure. So um, in fairness, I will say it was one of the greatest mistakes of my life because <laughs> she offered to have me like come to the show and be a guest on the show. I at that mm -hmm. time was a professor at the Ross Business School at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And I went to my dean. I'm like, Oprah wants to be on the show. What should I do? Because I didn't, you know. It, Today, it would be such a no-brainer, but mm -hmm. this was a long time ago, and serious professors didn't go on the Oprah Winfrey show. <laughs> and, and he said, well, instead of going on the show, what if she brought cameras to the University of Michigan and interviewed you here while you were here? I was like, sure. So that's what we did. So the sad news is I did not get to shake her hand, but mm -hmm. um, she did talk to me, and we talked about singles advertising. Right now, the most common way by far that young people meet dating partners is through some sort of online app. At that time, it was very, very rare, but it was starting to become much more popular. And people would write singles ads that they would place in print newspapers and magazines. And oh, really? that, that was the mechanism for doing it. And so since that was a form of advertising, 
I used to do these little workshops. I was you know, getting my PhD in marketing at Northwestern. You know, I needed to make some extra scratch. I do these like, hey, the advertising, the marketing PhD student will tell you how to write your singles ad, right? And so we used to do these kinds of things. Um, and so I talked about what led to a successful singles ad. Uh, and compared those from men and from women. And it's fun. And the punchline was, you know, a lot of the stuff is exactly what you would expect. That singles ads conform to every sexist stereotype that we have, unfortunately. So, you know, women are looking for men who are professionally successful and are taller. And men are looking for women who are a little bit younger and are good looking, etc. But um, for Men, it, you get more uh, responses from women if you avoid any sort of sexually explicit reference. But for women, you get more responses if you include some sort of sexually explicit reference. So that was kind of the punchline uh, of the Oprah Winfrey interview. Yeah, I, I actually saw the clip. That it was pretty funny. Um, and is is that still the case like now with these dating apps and stuff? Like. Um, you know, I don't know if you've done any research on that, but I'm assuming like it has probably stayed pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, there are different apps, I'm sure. And if you look at, you know, each app has its own, its own style and its own community. And so the rules might be a little bit different, but some of the basic stuff remains very much the same. And it is kind of unfortunate you know, people are shallow <laughs> and you find these results that like people's shallowness, um, both men's and women's, you know, we have our own interesting types of shallowness, you know, it comes to the fore on these, on these apps. And, and that's really, I think, one of the problems with them is that even though they're excellent at getting you the ability to meet people you wouldn't ever meet. And they're excellent because everyone you meet, you don't have to worry. Like, is this person in a relationship? Are they going to think I'm rude because I'm talking about dating? Right. Everyone's there for the same reason. There's right. no, you know, you don't have to pretend like you're, you're not really interested or whatever. Um, but you've got so many people that are out there that you need to sift through. Mm. that your brain automatically starts taking shortcuts to try and sift through these things. And, uh, you know, I'll just give one example. I actually, I hadn't given one of these uh, how to write a singles ad in years, but I got the old band back together, or rather Professor Mara Edelman got the old band back together. So she like teamed up and did another one in Napa Valley just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, really? For people. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And one of the people there said, you know, I'm really a dog lover. And I have in my ads, if you're not a dog lover, just don't even apply. Just like, don't, don't contact me. And she said, is that a little too specific? And both of us were like, yeah, that's a little too specific. Like the person that's really going to hit it off with may or may not be a dog lover. Um, they probably should be a dog tolerator, but, mm. you know, they don't necessarily need to be a dog lover. But why does she have that there? Well, there's just so many people out there that, you know, she's looking for anything to kind of cut it down to figure out who to focus on. Mm. And so that's that's a problem with those systems because it, our own intuitions about how to cut it down aren't always the best. They don't necessarily find us the right person. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I want to transition a little bit here and give you a little bit of background to how this podcast started. It really just started with me and one of my friends trying to understand, you know, what is it that actually makes people spend more on a certain brand over another? Why do people, you know, we'll use the word love, you know, a certain brand over another one. Um, And, you know, I feel like it's such a full circle moment right now because you're literally like the brand love guy. And I can just ask you directly, you know, like the two, I feel like two of the most intangible things to measure love and branding and and you you're the one that's the expert in both of them right you combine both of them so uh, i want to start with like what is it that makes people love things so since we're talking about this from a marketing branding perspective i think the easiest place to start is with a huge discovery that completely changed the way i look at this and I'm doing my best to make this not a secret, but it's still sort of a secret out there because, you know, it takes a long time for people to catch on uh, to this. And it's, and it's not at all what I would have ever guessed. It's probably not something your listeners would have ever guessed. And so what I used to think, which is wrong, is that people form relationships with brands the same way they form relationships with people that your brain has sort of one set of rules, one set of processes for thinking about things. And it puts people through the same mental processes that it puts objects through. It's all sort of one thing. Uh, And we love people because they have more of this quality or they have more of that quality and therefore they're more lovable than some object that might be there. It turns out your brain thinks about things in two very different ways. There's two very different sets of processes. And you can think about this through the metaphor of like two different worlds. Like your brain has object world and person world. Uh, And love only exists in person. Love does not exist in object world. In object world, what you've got is instrumental value. So instrumental value can go from, you know, negative, it hurts me. to neutral, it doesn't do anything for me, pro or con, to extremely positive. It's incredibly useful. I get a lot out of this. It's fantastic. So the intensity of instrumental value can be very high. If you think about one example, like imagine, take all of the savings, all of the money you have in the world. That amount of money is very high in its instrumental value to you. If someone wanted to steal that from you, you would really work hard to keep them from stealing that from you because that was that's really important to you. So the instrumental value on that's very high. Now imagine a typical uh, person, a typical parent, right? Someone comes to that parent and says, you know, I have analyzed, I see you have X dollars as your total savings in all the world. Um, I will trade you that amount of money for 20% more, that amount plus 20%. Uh, well, the person would, of course, say, yeah, why not? 20%, fantastic. But imagine someone came to a parent and said, you know, your child is extremely cute. I will trade you your child for a different child that is 20% cuter than your child. That parent would phone the police. What's the difference? The difference is the money lives in object. Hmm. And people think about it instrumentally. And they just, they're really just, what is in it for me? You don't have a relationship with that. And most brands, people do not really have a relationship with most brands. They value it if it's useful to them. 
And in that kind of in object world, what wins in marketing is just what I call useful, pleasant, easy. So the brand is, you know, performs a function really well. The experience for the consumer is at least pleasant. It'd be better if it's joyful, but, you know, it can't be negative. So that comes with all the user experience, customer experience stuff, making sure that the, their experience is, is a good feeling to it. And then it's easy. It's not too expensive. It's not too inconvenient. Uh, you know, it's mentally easy to think about it. It's very, you're very aware of it. And that's sort of what drives marketing in object world. Love only lives in person world. And we know this because we've got this word. First, we know it from a lot of neuroscience that shows very scientifically. But if we want to skip a lot of complicated science and sort of get to the point, uh, think about the word to objectify someone. What that mm. means is you're thinking about this person as if they were an object. The mere fact that we have that word shows us that there is a way we think about objects, and it's different from the way we think about people. Mm. Now, how is that word normally, you know, most commonly, the single most common use of that term is a woman saying to some guy, you only want to have sex with me. You are objectifying me. You are treating me like a sex object. That same woman, um, if she's with someone in a real loving relationship, might be much more enthusiastic about sexual relations with that person, right? So it's not that she's you know, opposed to, to, to someone sexually desiring her. It's that she knows at an intuitive level what science has now shown to be correct in, in the laboratory level. And that is, if someone is thinking about you like an object, they aren't loving you. They can't do both of those things at once. So if you want people to love your brand, it's not enough to make it good. Because if you make it good or you make it even excellent, what you're going to get is higher levels of instrumental value, which is good. That's a good thing. You want that. But it's not enough for love. For love, you have to have that plus. You have to get them to start thinking about your product or brand using the same thought processes that they use for people. So just like there's objectification where you look at a person, but you think about them as if they were an object, there is personification where you look at an object and you think about it as if it was a person. So that can happen and it does happen. And every time people really love a product or a brand, it's because they are at some unconscious level doing that personification. They're taking this thing and they're thinking about it as if it was a person. You talk about in your book. Um anthropomorphic objects. Can you explain what anthropomorphism is, um, you know, for the people that haven't read the book? Yeah, anthropomorphism is the easiest way, uh, the most straightforward way, I should say, of getting the brain to think about an object as if it was a person. And this is, you make the object look or sound or act literally like a person. So, classic examples of this a car, the front of the car is called the face. Designers, when they make a car, they call the front the face of the car. And it looks, the headlights look like eyes. The grill looks sort of like a mouth. It looks a little bit like a person. So that car is slightly anthropomorphic, meaning it has the shape, the form of an anthro of a person. Hmm. Uh, and consciously, you know it's not a person. But your brain decides if something is a person twice. It decides once consciously and once unconsciously. The thing you need for love is the unconscious part, not so much the conscious part. 
So if the unconscious mechanism that decides, oh, is this thing uh, a person, in which case I'll think about it, you know, I'll put it into person world for the way I think about it, or is it an object? Is it going in object world for the way I think about it? That mechanism never had to deal with disguises very much as we were evolving. It's, it, it gets fooled by the easiest sort of disguises. So if something looks vaguely like a person, um, it'll get categorized there. And it isn't just looking like a person that gets your brain to think about like a person. It could be sounding. So Siri on your phone um, or Alexa, those both anthropomorphize your phone because they sound you're having a conversation with something that looks like a person or excuse me, something that sounds like a, a person. So there's lots of ways to do this. Um, the most incredibly powerful way that you're seeing now are these chatbots. Uh, there's the most famous company for doing this um, is uh, Replica, spelled K with a K, and it makes these chatbots, it calls replicants. And so they only exist on your computer screen, and they look like an animated person that's drawn to be fairly lifelike uh, animated person. And you can have conversations with them. And they used to have a mode, they just ended it a couple of weeks, you know, recently, but they used to have a mode where you could put it into romance mode. And, you know, it was all about having sort of romantic, having an electronic girlfriend or boyfriend uh, online. People genuinely fall in love with these things all mm -hmm. the time. It's really powerful. I just was interviewed uh, by a Japanese Tokyo television news program about this uh, topic. And they're really interested because people like really fall in love with these. And you think, how the hell could you fall in love with an, an animated figure on the video screen? And well, the answer is your conscious mind knows it's not a person. But love is controlled by your unconscious mind. And your unconscious mind isn't that discerning. And it looks like a person to your unconscious mind. So that's how anthropomorphism works. Uh, and that definitely helps some products. But for most brands and products, it's not the number one way that, that you get the brand into person world and out of object world. Um, it can help, but it's, it's not the most common way that happens. Now, for the audience that's listening, they have a brand that may not be, um, you know, like a personal brand where they have their face on it. What are some things they can do to actually bring some personification into the brand and actually tap into this unconscious mind uh, and unconscious uh, feeling of love that, you know, other, you know, Coca-Cola, for example, is able to create, right? So there's a number of different things you can do. One is we'll start with anthropomorphism. And that is, can you make the brand or the product itself look like a person in some way. Um, there's this very successful new product uh, that are these scrubby pads. And they're just like for washing dishes. They just scrub off the stuff on your dishes when you wash dishes. They're like shaped like a face that smiles mm -hmm. at you. It's completely gratuitous. There's no reason to be shaped like a face, but people sort of like that. So that's one way to, to, to do it. The much more common way to do things is to get the brand or product to be associated in the consumer's mind with a person. This could be the owner, the founder of the company. It could be the spokesperson that's used in advertising. Or it could be a person that the consumer themselves knows. So Patek Philippe, the incredibly expensive, fancy Swiss watch uh, maker, 
they've used a campaign for many years that is, it says basically you never buy a Patek Philippe. You simply keep it safe for the next generation. That this mm-hmm. is something you're buying is going to be passed down in your family from generation to generation. And all their ads featured like a father with his son with the implication he's going to pass this on. And what that gets the audience to do, the consumer to do, is to start thinking of the brand. Well, could I give it to my child? And then they start thinking about the brand mentally associated with or connected to their own child. And that is enough to put the brand into person world through just that association to the the child. So there's a lot of times that brands or products get associated with another person. And you can see this happening. Um, I'll give you a simple example. Suppose you're dating somebody and they give you a decorative vase and you're madly in love with them. This is great. And you think the vase is super beautiful and you put it on your mantelpiece. Every time you walk by, you look at it and you think, oh, what a lovely vase. And then sometime later, the two of you break up and you're just furious with the person and you hate them and you walk by that vase. How's it going to look to you now? It's not going to, it's not going to be beautiful anymore, right? You're going to hate that thing. So you know that there's an association between the person and the object because the value of the object rises or falls with the way you think about the person that it's associated with. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a very common way to do things. And one of the things that brands can do, uh, if you are running a small business, for example, you as the owner or manager of that business are going to be the person that customers associate with that business. And the quality, the success of your business is dependent on the quality of the relationships that you have with the customers. In particular, if you want them to love your business, you're not going to have probably the super deep relationship with them. You're probably not going to go on vacation with your customers or what have you. But for the minutes that you spend, if you can convey to them that I'm really looking out for you, I'm not seeing you purely as a way to make money this minute, at least. Yes, it's a business relationship. Yes, I want to make money, but I'm going to put your long-term well-being ahead of my short-term products, profits. Mm. So you can trust me. That kind of trust is the core of love between people who become friends. So what holds friendships together is also love. Uh, And that kind of trust is the core of that sort of friendship love. And if you can create that kind of trust with your customers um, by being that trustworthy, right? not looking out for like the next sale at every moment, but honestly talking to them about like what's in their advantage long-term and what isn't. Uh, in their advantage long-term, that will create a kind of a friendship love between you and that person, the other person. And then that will transfer over into brand love for your company. So that's Mm. how brand love for a lot of companies comes about. Um, For some companies, they'll use like, a, a if you've got more money, you might use a spokesperson in your advertising who may be the owner of the company, but often is not. Maybe it's a celebrity, maybe it's somebody else. That's one of the advantages of using celebrities. One of the things that I recommend to a lot of companies is they consider um, animated spokespeople of some kind, like the uh, Gecko 
uh, that, you know, that, that's, that's the, the great spokesperson because an animated spokesperson like that, you can, they'll say whatever you want. They'll always be totally on message and they'll never have a scandal and they won't age. And so it gives you, you know, the brand, a lot of control about what's going on. As you're talking about this, there's uh, a couple things that are going through my mind. So number one, you you mentioned earlier about the concept of objectification, right? Like, and then in the book, you talk about how, uh, like, if if a um, you know, you know someone bought like antique furniture and then someone complimented their furniture for being looking nice, um, they they feel like a little bit hurt because they feel like they're objectifying the furniture and just looking at it for its appearances, and so. Where my mind's going to is I, I want to understand your perspective on Apple because first thing is like, okay, is that person connection, is that like with Steve Jobs? Is that like one of the things that really draws people to Apple? And then the second thing is you talk about like brand as religion and the similarities we have with like, you know, uh, religion that we see with people that fall in love with a brand, right? I think you, you mentioned in there that people that are less religious tend to fall more in love with brands. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And so like, I just want to get your thoughts and and understand like from your perspective, like if you could just riff on like Apple for a little bit and just explain like all the things they're doing. I know there's like probably so many things, like every, they probably do everything in the book, right? So from your perspective, like what are the things that really stand out to you about Apple? Because everyone talks about Apple when they talk about good branding, right? But from your perspective, who's actually studied and researched like love and studied brand love, you know, what is Apple really doing that's um, better than the rest of the pack? Yeah. So I've done fairly in-depth research on uh, consumers' perceptions of Apple as compared to other brands that they compete with. And it's really clear what they're doing. Now, Apple, I should say, is the most loved brand. And Apple gets that way. The number one thing that they do that is better than most other companies is they try to be the most loved brand. Mm. But what I mean by this is they measure brand love. Now, you, you said, yeah, brand love is difficult to measure. It is difficult to measure. Um, I have developed and published scientifically validated measures of brand love. And so it can be measured. And one of the things I do most often with companies is I develop a validated form measure of brand love that's specific to their company uh, and their and their products so that they can measure it and see whether what they're doing is improving or not, is helping with regard to brand love or not. But Apple measures brand love. And when they design a new product or create a new advertisement or design a retail store, central to their thinking is, is this going to increase or decrease brand love? So that's one of the main reasons they have so much brand love is they're actually serious about it and they take it seriously. Hmm. Now, getting to the specifics of what they're doing, um, they are doing everything right. And I've noticed this for years. I wish I could claim credit for what they do. I've never actually spoken to Apple on this topic. I've spoken to a lot of their competitors, uh, but I've never spoken to Apple uh, on this topic. But they really are doing things. And what is funny to me is every time I find something in my own research that generates brand love, um, either I discover, oh, look, Apple's already doing this, or like a year later, they start doing it. So mm-hmm. they're very much on a on a path with uh, the work that I've been doing on this. Uh, so they start with product quality. They make very good products and innovative products, and that's a big thing. But as I said before, 
Um, product quality is super important to brain love, but if that's all you have, you'll just get this, you'll still be living in object world, you'll still get this instrumental value. You won't get that kind of emotional attachment and commitment. So for that, they have to move it into person world, move their products into person world. And they do that three ways. So one is through Steve Jobs, who the late, you know, Steve Jobs, uh, but he was very associated with Apple and that helped a lot uh, in that regard. And I was speaking with someone who is well-informed on such matters and was saying that in the electronics space, Apple has the most brand love, but in the home appliances, if you look at vacuum cleaners, Dyson has a lot of brand love, much more than all the other vacuum companies. And they were wondering why that might be. And I said, well, look, you know, Apple has Steve Jobs, Dyson has Dyson. Both of these brands have a person that's associated with the brand. And the other vacuum cleaners, although they're often mechanically wonderful machines, they don't have that same sort of connection. So that's one of the ways that Apple does it. The second way, as I mentioned, is that the products themselves are anthropomorphic. You talk to Siri. She has conversations with you. So that moves things into person world as well. And the third way is they've had this advertising campaign for decades, which is the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC campaign that many of your listeners will recall, where mm -hmm. they have two guys. One guy is standing sort of dweeby looking in a business suit. And he's saying like, I'm a PC. And then there's this casual, but very good looking charismatic guy dressed, you know, in sort of casual attire saying, I'm a Mac. Um, and then they, they've developed this campaign for years and it puts a human identity to the brand. Mm. And that gets people again to see the brand as, you know, thinking about it the way you think about a person. So they don't actually, consumers know it's a machine. Nobody's fooled. Nobody's like thinks it's literally a person, but unconsciously their mind applies the same kind of thought processes to it that it applies to a person because it has these connections to people. There's one question I had to ask you. I know you're in the Detroit metro area. I'm from the Detroit metro area. We know the case of the Lions, right? What I wanted to ask you is you mentioned this in your book as well about like, sports fans uh and you know how you know the love they have for their teams and so why are my friends still lions fans you know what i mean like now okay like this season uh, all right like you know things are starting to look a little bit better but like for the last like 15 20 years you know they stuck with them through like you know like the windless season you know what i mean like all throughout like all the lows and you know now we're hopefully we're gonna have some highs but like why is everyone like still lions fans yeah well, let me give you a, a, a larger picture on that. One of my friends and colleagues who does a great job is a woman named Brittany Hodak, and she has a book on making uh, superfans, creating superfans. And that's a metaphor, sort of the superfans idea is, is basically it's the same as brand love. It's just a different term. And it's very popular as a way of thinking about customers. So you want whatever your brand is, you want your customers to be super fans of your brand. But her background is in the music industry. Uh, so she's uh, worked with Taylor Swift and worked with other sort of music celebrities and then is trying to apply that to, or does apply that, you know, things she's learned to various brands. Where are people fans the most? 
we're fans the most of musicians, actors, athletes, right? What that's where people have this sort of burning intensity. And a lot of other companies like, why don't they have that burning intensity for us? Well, what why do musicians, actors, and athletes all have in common? They're people. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to form a burning love attachment to a human being because that's what your brain is designed to do. It's not really designed to do to form that kind of an attachment to a rock or some other object. Uh, so part of this, as I said, is getting, you know, getting your brand into people world. And part of the reason people are so committed to sports teams or other athletes is that they are people. And so it's easier to form that kind of connection. Now, specifically, you want to know why do people stick with a losing team? And yeah, being, you know, living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, being near Detroit, I know all about, you know, losing teams. Um, although our college football team is doing a little better now. Uh, in any event, one of the things we look for is an expression of our values. So it's if an object, if all you want from the object is instrumental value, if you're living in object world, the values, your personal, moral, and ethical values aren't terribly important. You know, it's like, what does that product do for you at a practical level? Right? But when you start getting into person world, you start evaluating people, not just based on uh, whether they will do something nice for you, but like, are they your kind of person? Do you really want to be associated with this person? And a lot of that is, do they really share your values? One of the things that is true about people who stick with losing teams, that one of their deep personal values is loyalty. This is a fundamental human value. Part of the reason we succeed as a species is because we are loyal in friendships. My friends know that if they need me, I will be there for them. And I know that if I need them, they'll be there for me. And we've got that makes us work together as a team really effectively. And so loyalty is the value, is the moral value that says you've got a connection to this person. If they're having a hard time, you do not abandon them. You stick with them. And the people who stick with losing sports teams tend to be people for whom that kind of loyalty is a really important value. It's a part of who they are. And they look at sticking with the sports team as an exercise, an example of that value. And you can see that because when they look at other people who are only fans of the sports team when it's doing well, they really look down on them in a moral way. They're like, oh, fair weather fans, right? Right. And they look at them like, you're a bad human being. It's not just that your entertainment choice is different from mine, but Mm -hmm. you're a bad person because you have this quality. So what they really want to do is they want to be good people. We all want to be good people. Last thing I want to talk about, uh, we talked about this a little bit before uh, when we started recording, but I I, I told you that like when I started the podcast, one of the, you know, things I was considering was actually going for an MBA and for me, I was like, man, why go for an MBA when I can just start a podcast and just <laughs> interview the people that I can, um, you know, learn from, uh, and just focus on the marketing side, which is where I actually was most interested in, right? Like, why do I have to learn about all these other subjects if I just want to learn about marketing? And so I know you, you mentioned there's a, a really cool program that you guys started at the University of Michigan Dearborn. Uh, if you could give the details, because I feel like the audience that would listen to an episode like this would really love a program like that. Yeah, so thank you so much for the opportunity, Ahmed. So we started a program, which is unlike you've got your two-year, classic two-year full-time MBA. 
we said, let's take all of the marketing courses in there for people just like you who are just, they don't want a full MBA. They don't want to necessarily take two years. They just want to do something faster that's really focused in marketing. Let's just take all the marketing courses and bundle them together and call it a one-year full-time equivalent, one-year master's in marketing. So you can get this master's in marketing, and we are just in the process now of putting it 100% online. So if you are not happen, you don't happen to be in the Dearborn, Michigan area, it doesn't matter. Uh, the program is, is out there for you. And you can find it at the University of Michigan Dearborn College of Business. The Dearborn part is important. Uh, University of Michigan has you know, a campus in Ann Arbor and a separate campus in Dearborn, and they have different programs. So you got to look for the University of Michigan Dearborn College of Business. The program, the, the college is really interesting because it was started after Henry Ford died. He had this huge mansion and this huge plot of land. He was the world's richest man at the time. Mm-hmm. And he donated that land to the state of Michigan to create a campus of the University of Michigan. There in Dearborn, right next to the Ford Motor World Headquarters, it will train everybody in the world who comes to it, right? But his idea was, yeah, it's going to train engineers and managers for the Ford Motor Company, among other Mm. things. So the engineering school is really strong. The business school is really strong. We have a full service university there. Um, And we have a lot of, especially at the, the graduate level, a lot of people not just obviously not just in Ford, but from all you know businesses in the, in the whole area. Um, a lot of professional people come to get that kind of training because that's what the whole campus was started about. So please, I had, I had no please idea. check that out. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea that uh, Henry Ford was behind University of Michigan Dearborn. That's uh, pretty cool. And then last thing, uh, I always like to give the, uh, the guests a little bit of time to explain where to find them. So for the audience, if they want to read your book or uh, get in touch with you, I don't know if you post on social media or have um, you know any other uh, things where people can connect with you. Of course, I'll leave all the links. I'll leave the links to the, the program in the description as well. Um, but yeah, where can people find you? Yeah. So in addition to my work as a professor, I do a lot of work as a keynote speaker. And I've got a website for that, which is drbrandlove.com. So no periods in there, but just drbrandlove, all one word, dot com will get you there. And uh, you can find all sorts of information as a contact form for me there, et cetera. Um, if you're interested in the book, uh, I, the book is available on all the anlo- online booksellers. It may well be available in a bookstore near your home. It's called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And I'm pleased it got an Amazon uh, Best Book Award, which was very nice. Uh, so you can go and check it out on Amazon or you know any other bookstore. Yeah, I will say I did have a chance to listen to the audiobook. And, you know, branding is is a topic and, and love is a topic where there's not a lot of, you know, like one thing, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because like there's not a lot of like data and science in like the pop the mainstream kind of things that you see about branding. Right. And so this book has, you know, leading uh, research and, and all the science to kind of back all the claims. So if you're interested in like, you know, research based understanding of what, you know, why we love things and, 
um, you know, learning more about that. This is a really good read. Really interesting. But thanks, thanks again, Dr. Huvia. Appreciate it. Now, as always, I have my key takeaways from this episode, but before we get into that, I want to share a clip from our discussion with Shahar Maron on building brand equity. Coke is the easiest way to think of this. It's like the, the raw ingredients and then uh, what that costs and then what the finished product, what people are willing to pay for. If you can take a few pennies worth of raw ingredients and you can sell it for a couple of bucks because people like this combination of carbonation and syrup and whatever, it's now called Coca-Cola and now elicits a feeling. Well, that's part of brand equity. It's that extra amount that people are willing to pay. If you enjoyed this discussion with Dr. Ahuvia, I'm sure you'll also enjoy the episode with Shahar. Check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. It is episode number 61. Now, here are my key takeaways. Number one, if you want to get people to love your brand, you need to employ personification. And number two, if you want to develop brand love, you've got to get serious about it. Start measuring it. And that is all for this episode. If you enjoyed this discussion, the easiest way to help out is to go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're really pushing to grow the channel right now. We have shorter case study videos on the channel and it doesn't cost a thing to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next episode.